Second Timothy chapter four. I still have a few uh, mental images of my first day at Western Baptist Bible College, which is now Corbin University. I can remember walking into the, the dorm where I was going to stay, and one of the first guys that I saw there, his name, his name was Tommy Thompson. Uh, the last that I heard Tommy was Dr. Tommy and was the vice president of what used to be Christian Heritage College. Back then, he was just my sister's ex-boyfriend. But one of the older men on campus... I'd seen him in a different uh, or in a variety of settings, and uh, and I thought, wow, there's a man, you know. I, I I can remember I can remember thinking he is a college man, and I am a college boy, you know. And then there was a, a fellow named Dave Pace, uh, who was my resident assistant. Uh, uh, resident assistant is a college word for a hall monitor. You know, they try to keep the, uh, keep the battle down to a dull roar, especially in a men's dorm. Um, this guy was about, about this tall and about that wide, but he'd been a body, uh, or a, not a bodybuilder, but a weightlifter, a, a competition weightlifter in high school, and he had, he had giant legs. He'd done the leg press. But he worked in the library, and he knew where every book was. He'd go in and say, Dave, I, I have to do a paper for a New Testament survey on XYZ, and he'd go... Well, you go right down there, and the library had a lot of nooks and crannies, and boy, he knew where all the books were and which books you should look at. I thought, boy, what a great man Dave Pace is. He's a, he's a pastor the last time that I knew. Um, I, there were a number of men like that in the, in, in, on the campus, and I looked up to them, and I thought, wow, what great men they are. And days went by, and years went by, and, and pretty soon I was a junior or a senior, and one day I, I looked around, and I thought... Where are the college men? It can't be me now, can it? And I think that's how Timothy felt when he got 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, we have to start at the end of this book to understand the beginning of it, because the Apostle Paul says to Timothy in verse 6, I am already being poured out like a drink offering. Now that's a reference to a sacrifice made in the Old Testament. They would take some wine and they would pour it out before the Lord. Now obviously the Lord didn't physically receive the wine. They they would also take a sheaf of wheat sometimes and wave it. It was a, a way to worship the Lord. And the Apostle Paul likens his life to the wine poured out on the ground. Obviously, once it was poured out, it was not regathered and it was not reused. He's talking about his death. He says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness in which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but to all those who have loved his appearing. And I can imagine Timothy reading this going, Whoa, dude, Paul, you're not going anywhere. You're going to live forever. Think about the relationship that Timothy and Paul had. 
Paul was the only pastor Timothy ever had. He was his spiritual father. He refers to him, and we're going to talk about this first few verses in chapter 1 in just a moment. He was his, he was his spiritual father. He appears to have been the guy who preached the gospel or, or counseled with Timothy and helped him come to faith in Christ. He mentored him up. He took him with him. He said, he asked the church there where, where Timothy went, he said, would you let him go with me and be my assistant? I mean, I don't know who you respect in the world. You know, if we want to think in the spiritual world, if it's Billy Graham or, or, or Luis Palau or the president of some seminary or whoever it might be, some great man, and, and this man said, I want you to come be my assistant. Timothy was a kid, a teenager. Wow. And he went with the Apostle Paul, and, and, and he was on an adventure of a lifetime. But he was the assistant. He wasn't the man. Paul was the man. Timothy was the helper. And I can imagine Timothy thinking, Paul, what are you telling me? You're leaving and you're giving me instruction. Are you telling me I'm going to be in charge here? What's interesting is that as Paul, as Paul is essentially passing the baton to Timothy, we, we understand from little clues that we get in the scripture is that Timothy was not a naturally hard-charging, get-it-done, I'm-in-charge kind of guy. He was naturally a little more reserved. Maybe he was more of a thinker. Maybe he held back. Um, maybe he was shy. We don't know all of those things. But he receives a number of commands to say, go on, do the work. I find it interesting that God chose somebody who wasn't humanly, naturally gifted to do a very challenging work. Now don't raise your hands, but let me ask you a question. Are there any challenges in your life for which you feel inadequate? Are there things that you're facing that you're, you're thinking, God, did you put the right person in the right place here? There's a reason why God does that. There's a reason why he did that with Timothy, and there's a reason why he does that with us, and it's right here. We have this treasure, the treasure of Christ in us, in an earthen vessel, in a clay pot, something that's fragile, so that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. God chose Paul for a number of reasons, and then God chose Timothy, and, and, and Paul passes the baton to Timothy. The church is in its infancy. And Timothy is not becoming the next apostle. Don't, don't get that wrong idea. But what Paul was, is going to do here is he's going to say, Timothy, the church is in its infancy. It needs leadership. Here is a whole bunch of truth that you already know. But I'm telling you, you need to take this truth now and you need to go out and help others to become strong in the faith. I believe the theme of 2 Timothy and the theme that I want to bring to you throughout this book is the theme of strength. How can we be strong, spiritually strong, 
personally, individually strong in God. And that's why I've chosen to call this series Strength Training. Each week you'll see that phrase at the beginning of the sermon title, Strength Training. Do you want to be strong or do you want to be weak? It's almost a, it's almost a silly question to say, do you want to be a weak person? Well, Nobody would say, oh yes, I want to be weak. Some people would say, oh yes, I want others to do everything for me. But if you're a Christian, you don't get to choose to be strong or weak. You need to choose the practices which will make you strong, because if you don't choose them from God's word yourself, God will choose them for you. I want to talk to you about the beginning, the basis, the core of strength. I've called it building the core today. Look what Paul talks about right up front with Timothy in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, And Christ Jesus our Lord, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. The core of strength in life is salvation in Christ. You cannot be a genuinely strong person without salvation in Christ. The first thing Paul does as he is starting to pass the baton to Timothy is he says, Timothy, I've been around you, and I know you are a true believer. I know your grandmother was a true believer, I know your mother was a true believer, and I know you are a true believer. He doesn't say, I'm thankful that Christ was genetically dispensed through your family. Because it's not. And if you're here today and you think that because you were born in a Christian country or a Christian family that you are a Christian, you are not. Paul became a believer after hearing the gospel of Christ. Excuse me, Timothy became a believer, as did Paul. Paul refers to salvation in verse 1 with this phrase, the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. The promise of life. What is the promise of life? Well, the promise of life is is described in this what what we often call the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There is a promise of life inherent in the gospel. When you come to believe in Christ as your Savior, you start living in spiritual life. 
before you believe in Christ, you are living in spiritual death. Now, there's a little bit of a, a conundrum there, a little bit of a proverb. You say, well, how, how can you say I'm, I'm dead when I'm walking around? Well, obviously, haven't you seen that show, Dead Man Walking? No. Spiritual life or spiritual death is a quality of life as well as a destination. Yes, everlasting life has to do with heaven, but it also has to do with life right now. Yes, spiritual death has to do with hell after our physical death, but it also has to do with the quality of life we are living now. Last week we studied in terms of spiritual liberty or spiritual slavery, and those would be other synonyms or other descriptors of spiritual life, which is liberty, and spiritual death, which is slavery. Until you are alive in God through faith in Christ, you will be controlled by sin. You will truly say, I can't help myself. That is a true statement for those who have never believed in Christ. I don't know what comes over me. You know, uh, this and this and this happens, and the next thing you know, I'm just doing this. Frankly, if, if that's the norm in your life and you cannot control sin, the starting point of examination is, am I truly a believer in Christ? People come in to see me for counsel. They talk for usually a, a good while, maybe an hour or so, about the situation in their life. And, and one of the first questions I ask is, tell me about your relationship with God. If you are locked in repeated patterns that you cannot escape, it may well be because you are spiritually dead and therefore too weak to change. On TV this week, I saw a man pick up a bench. He'd had a bench made where he could stand in the middle and there were handles. He could reach down and grab the handles and go like this and lift it up. And there was about, I think there was four women sitting on each side. And he grabbed that thing and went, like that. Everybody went, wow. I'm lucky to get up off the bench these days. Strength begins with life. You cannot be spiritually strong if you are not spiritually alive. Now I know there, those of you that have been here for a while, maybe this is a little bit redundant, but I just can't emphasize enough how that this is the starting point of becoming a strong individual. You've got to be spiritually alive. And if there is repeated weakness that cannot be conquered... Perhaps the point to start at is saying, have I ever really believed in Christ? Number two in strength training, salvation brings security about eternity. Verse 1 again says, there is a promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. Is there a greater challenge in life than facing death? We've faced it a fair bit lately here. 
Most of us, not particularly personally, a few of us have. Is there a greater challenge? How can people be secure in their eternal destiny? How can people lie in a hospital bed or hear the dreaded words from the doctor and stop and realize, it's okay, I'm on my way to meet Jesus in person. Where does that kind of strength come from? According to the Bible, it comes from our security in Christ, and Ephesians 1 talks about it. In Him, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So you, you heard about Christ, you heard the good news, you believed. Whom, after you believed, you were sealed. And that word has to do with the concept of protection. You know, if you're putting up vegetables, you, you have a process of sealing them to keep the germs out. God has a process of sealing Christians to make sure they make it to heaven. And it, it, it involves the ministry of the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until... The redemption of the purchased possession. I'm up to about six medical providers dealing with uh, two uh, bulging discs in my back. And not one guarantee yet. In fact, they're all very careful to say now there's no guarantee. <laughs> I understand that. We live in a world like that. You buy a Toyota, best car made in the world, supposedly at one time, I guess. I mean, isn't that what people used to think? Oh, a Toyota. No guarantee. There's one guarantee in life. One, one positive guarantee. And it's this one right here. The Holy Spirit guarantees your salvation until, until... The redemption happens. What does that mean until the redemption happens? Well, there are three benefits of salvation. There are not three steps. Be careful here. But there are three benefits of salvation, and they happen, if you will, over time in our lives. And the first one is that we get freedom from the penalty of sin. When you bow your knee, so to speak, whether you do it literally or figuratively, and you say, I am a sinner, Christ is the Savior... I cannot save myself, only He can save me. When you put your faith in Christ like that, God takes the book that has the record of your sin, and there is one, and He folds it up, and He puts it away, and He never gets it out. You will not go to heaven someday and him, and him take that book down off the wall and let's say, and he'll say, well, is there enough good to outweigh the bad? No, no. The Bible says that once you believe in Christ, your sin is removed from you as far as the east is from the west. And obviously, God caused that to be written because there is no such thing as an end point of east and west. You just keep going farther east or going farther west. And when you believe in Christ, God says, no more penalty of sin for you. He gave the penalty of sin to Christ on the cross. You don't need to fear 
standing before God as judge. Because the penalty is removed. While we are alive in this life, the benefit of salvation is the day by day, hour by hour, freedom from the power of sin. Certainly the habits of sin are powerful in our life, and if we're going to stop lying, if we're going to stop cheating, if we're going to stop being unkind, if we're going to stop whatever sin it is, it's going to take work, but it's possible because that is what God is doing. We are being delivered from the power of sin. But when we read about this, this idea of redemption, that, that, uh, that the Holy Spirit is going to protect us until the time of redemption, it's this third benefit. We get freedom from the presence of sin. There's a day coming when we are going to meet Christ face to face. Some of our friends have just done that recently. For some of us, it's down the road a ways as far as we can tell. Unless the rapture of the church comes and we all go zoom. What a great thing that would be. Wouldn't it be great for that to happen right after the picnic? We, we wouldn't want Cindy's work to... <laughs> I wish Cindy was here for me to pester a little bit. I love that little... <laughs> When you meet Christ face to face, that's when, that's what, that is the moment of completed redemption. At that moment, your sin will be eradicated from your life absolutely, completely and totally, and, and you will be receiving the full benefit of salvation. Now, my point this morning is, is we're talking about strength. How does this give us strength? He says the Holy Spirit has sealed you. That is a truth. He doesn't say you should pray for the Holy Spirit to seal you. He doesn't say maybe the Holy Spirit. He says he will seal you. Well, how do we know that? How do we experience that? We experience it this way. You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to be at work in our lives bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Yes, I have believed in Christ. Yes, His grace has come and poured down over me. We're going to sing at the end of this service, Calvary covers it all. Yes, that's true. And because of that, there is strength in facing the end of life. One of the folks from our church who made it from heaven who made it to heaven before me that I thought of this week is Lloyd McCarty. I, I don't know how many years he's been gone. Seven, maybe. My visual, my visual image of Lloyd is standing right by the door, right back there, because he was the head usher, passing out the bulletin, make sure the offering got collected. He had what would be commonly referred to as a Budweiser depository. But he didn't get it from drinking beer. <laughs> he drove a truck. 
And he retired, and he suddenly had, I think, a bad heart attack. And I went and saw him in the hospital, and he, he shook his head. He said, I don't think I'm going to make it, but I'm, I'm headed for heaven. And he didn't make it. But he did make it to heaven. Where does that come from? It doesn't come from me. And it doesn't come from you. And it's not because we're such great people. It's because the Holy Spirit comes in when you truly believe in Christ. And you get this security so that you can walk through life saying, No matter what happens, someday I'm going to end up in heaven. What kind of power is that? It's a power that's not known on earth. 25 years ago, I was recruited into law enforcement chaplaincy by a sheriff who was a complete non-Christian. Not talking about anybody here in the area. But he knew that chaplains would do one thing that he wanted. Death notifications. Now, if you don't know this, if your loved one dies in California and, you know, maybe some traumatic accident, that police, office, that police officer there will call one here and say, go tell their loved ones that their, their loved one died. That's a death notification. And law enforcement people don't like doing that. And if there's a chaplain, they say, oh, would you go do that? And we go, yes, we'll go do that. Why would we be comfortable with that? And some unsaved law enforcement officer isn't comfortable. Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that if I am secure about my eternity, I can face death with a great degree of strength. Not necessarily joy, I'm not glad that people are gone. I'm not in a hurry to die. But I have no doubt about where I'm going. And that, that, that is the essence of personal strength. You want to be strong? You want to live without fear? Make sure you're ready for eternity through faith in Christ. There's one more aspect to the core, one more aspect that salvation, one more aspect of strength salvation brings to us. Salvation brings peace for living. Paul wrote 2 Timothy from a jail cell, probably our image of a dungeon type jail is probably where he was. If you have that movie mental image of a dungeon. He's in a dungeon expecting to be executed, which usually wasn't done in a humane way by the emperor Nero. How could he talk about peace? Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord to you, Timothy. I wish you peace. I'm sending you peace. How could he talk about peace? Listen to this verse that he wrote. You know this one. I've learned in whatever state I am in to be content. He wrote that in a jail cell. Or at least under house arrest with an uncertain future. How could he, how could he be in uncertainty? How could he be facing a horrible death 
and be content. How can you be content when you get a layoff notice? How can you be content when that person you like so much rejects you? How can you be content when the overdrawn notice comes in the mail from the bank? How can you be content when your child joins the army and is assigned to the infantry during a time of active warfare? How can you be content when you feel locked in a dead-end job? How can you be content when you have an illness that can't be cured? How can you be content when you fill in the blank? How does peace or contentment happen? From where does that strength come? Why was Paul able to be so peaceful and just love Timothy and write him this book and send it off to him when he was under such difficulty? Contentment comes from the presence of Christ and the knowledge that his active that he is actively caring for his disciples and creating eternal value out of all their experiences. I hope you get that phrase, maybe maybe memorize it or at least the, the sentiment of it. Contentment comes from the presence of Christ and the knowledge that he is actively caring for his disciples and creating eternal value out of all their experiences. Let your conduct be without coveting for, and be content. Why? For he himself, in Greek, this is a way to emphasize what is being said. When, for us to say the words he himself, we call that redundant in, in English grammar. But in Greek, it adds emphasis. He himself, God himself said this. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that we may boldly, could I just say strongly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Contentment comes from the presence of Christ and the knowledge that he is actively caring and that he is creating value out of all their experiences. I went to, I went to the pain clinic to get a shot. And as I told my Sunday school class, it worked. I got some pain. I... <laughs> Went to a clinic to get a shot to relieve the symptoms and possibly to help the problem. There's no guarantee uh, that has been causing my pain. But it's a, it's a procedure that, that, that requires, in their safety estimation, that you not drive for a day. So I needed somebody to drive me in and drive me back and, of course, get breakfast on the way home because had, you, know, you can't eat before you do that kind of thing. You can't eat until afterwards. Now, who do you suppose I asked? And what do you suppose she said? See, I know I can count on her, and she knows she can count on me. I mean, yes, I asked. I mean, I, 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 I try not to just tell her what's going on, although that does happen once in a while. And she says, be nice if you'd let me know a little farther ahead. 
I said, hey, I have to go to this appointment. Can you take me? So, yeah, no problem, you know, whatever. But we have this tacit knowledge that we're there for each other. You understand that with your, with your loved ones. Aren't you a loved one of God's? Do you have such a relationship that you count on him? Therefore, I say to you, don't worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink or about what your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't, they don't plant. They don't harvest. They don't lay up their food into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? The reason we aren't content often is because we don't trust God. And the reason we don't trust God is because we don't know Him very well. The better you know God, the easier it is to trust Him. The more you live with Him, the the easier it is to say, Okay, I'm just going to let you do what you're doing. It'll work out. Did you hear Helen Steele? You know, we have to trust God more, and that's good. Is that what you're saying in your life? Times are tough, so we've got to trust God more. So that's good. It's a better chance to trust God. Yippee! That's what it should be. Because if we're truly saved, if we're truly born again, and we're developing our relationship with God, we grow stronger and stronger. The last medical therapy that I went to this week was a physical therapist. You might say I got my own personal Jillian Michaels to kick me around. Truth is, I have to strengthen the core. I've got a good, thick, solid core. (laughs) She said, let me show you this exercise that she showed me how to do. She said I could start next Monday after the picnic today. Pushing away from the table. No. <laughs> now she showed me some exercise. She showed me some ways to exercise and some, some ways not to exercise. But she said, yes, this has to get strengthened, and it, and it has to be strengthened in a different... Obviously, the approach that I've taken has not worked. You know, folks, that we have summarized, we've worked so hard in Christianity at summarizing the gospel to get it down into a nutshell so we can share it with somebody really quick that I think we've, I think we've shrunk the impact that salvation as a doctrine ought to have on us. And we need to step back and say, you know, this is really incredible that I can be secure about my future, I can have spiritual life now, I can have peace for living. All of this comes from salvation. And all of that strengthens the core. Do you know that, it, obviously, if, if, if this doesn't get strong, 
no matter how strong these muscles are up here and these down here, I can't rake the yard. You know, I asked this gal, I said, well, like, raking dirt? And she goes, no, no raking dirt. Okay, that's a putsy little thing to me. But even though my arms are strong enough to rake, and my legs are strong enough to rake, my core is weak. Therefore, I am weak. Friends, the core of life is salvation. And I want to encourage you to strengthen yourself in the doctrine of salvation. I want to encourage you to read the book of 2 Timothy at least once a week while we're studying it. This won't be as long of a series as the Gospel of John because it's not quite as long of a book. But I also want to challenge you towards something else this week. I made Anna Hubbard real happy because Anne Hubbard is our librarian. I want everybody to look over there who can see the books over there. Those are all available for checkout. And if you didn't know it, we have another whole room full of books in that corner of the building downstairs. And I've asked her to pull out some books on the doctrine of salvation and on salvation as an experience that is testimonial books. And she's going to be over there. And if you've never said, I'm going to study the doctrine of salvation, I'm going to read some, something really well written on that, this would be a great opportunity for you to strengthen your core, even if you've known the Lord for a while. And if there's nothing over there that looks like it's got enough meat on the bones, you come to me and I'll take you to my library and I'll give you something to chew on, okay? But I want to challenge you to be reading something from God's Word, reading something from a godly man who has written a book, uh, uh, perhaps on salvation, and perhaps memorizing these verses from Timothy, from, excuse me, from Titus 2 about salvation, and meditating on, on and, and, and saying, God, help me to see how big and how important my salvation is to the strength of my life. Heavenly Father, make us strong. We don't want to be weak. We don't want to cave. We don't want to fold. We want to be strong. Help us to build this core of our strength. Father, if there's somebody here who's never accepted Christ as their Savior, bring them to yourself today as only you can. Cause them by your Holy Spirit to know this is true and that they ought to believe so that you can start building strength in them. I pray in Christ's name, amen.